I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a black veteran's perspectives on race, culture, and business. Today, I want to talk to you all about the black man's burden. And it's the weight of responsibility many of us care as black men and arguably black women. And, you know, I've talked about on this podcast before, but one of the reasons that I felt um, that I didn't enjoy about the Marines or being at the Naval Academy um, at times was this weight of responsibility of like um, you're carrying the weight of your race on your shoulders at all time. And that, you know, how you perform, right? Like I can't perform just being Mike Stedman, right? I'm like Mike Stedman carrying the weight of the entire black race. So anything I do, any mistake I made is going to be judged, is gonna, how do I say this? Is going to be held against people that come after me. Cause you're, what you're really doing is you're, you're setting the standard, you're setting the baseline in a lot of people's eyes. And the challenge with that is, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. We're all humans. And, you know, not all of us are going to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. or the next Philip Jones. Shout out to Philip Jones. You know, my guy Phil was an amazing Marine Corps infantry officer, uh, performed at the highest level. He performs anywhere he goes in life, right? And he raises the bar. He raises the standard. Um, but unfortunately, what comes with that, too, is that you know, when people are used to like a Philip Jones and then somebody else comes in who's maybe not at the same level he's at, um, it can be held against him. And, you know, me leaving the Marine Corps and moving to Newark was kind of stepping away from all of that. Just the weight in general, right? Like it, it's just, it can be overwhelming at times, you know, because you're just trying to make it just like everyone else. You're trying to do the best um, you can, but, you know, your performance is, is, you're watched, right? It's like the gaze. Some people describe it as like that white gaze, right? With people always like watching you and staring at you and judging you, you know, and mistakes you make, which everyone is making, it's just amplified, you know, 10, 20 times more, even a hundred times more, um, just cause you're black. And so, you know, I get out of the Marine Corps and I moved to Newark and I felt like this was an opportunity to be around my people. Um, and so that way, you know, I could just kind of blend in and be comfortable in my own skin, right? But what's interesting, and maybe it's the irony of life, is that I still feel like I carry the black man's burden here in Newark. And here's why. Because there's a lot of kids watching me. Um, you know, young black men and women and children of color in general, not just, you know, African-American, but Latino, you know, Puerto Rican, Dominican, et cetera, right? We're just this big, giant melting pot. And, you know, what made me think about this, what made me want to talk about this on the podcast was last week I was at a, um, I took some kids out to dinner as part of my th our Thrive program. And Thrive is our entrepreneurship program we run here under Ironbound Boxing to teach kids how to bootstrap a small business, right? So you've probably heard me talk about it on previous podcasts. But one of the things that I always try to do beyond just kind of coaching and talking business is really get to know kids and understand you know, what their motivations are. Why do they want to start a business? Learn about their backgrounds. 
And so we're eating some sushi and we're just kind of chopping it up. And I'm learning about, you know, a couple of the kids that I'm working with. And, you know, one of them opens up about how she was in a gang in high school. She was telling me about gang life and everything. And I asked her, you know, well, what made you kind of go down that, that, that road, that road, and also what allowed you to kind of come out of it? And one of the things she had talked about was like many of us, you know, she was raised in a single parent home, you know, and was just real rebellious and her dad was locked up and, you know, she just kind of finding that sense of belonging, that sense of community where she was able to find, you know, uh, being affiliated with this gang. Um, and her brother's going through the program with us too. And so we're just kind of talking it. And then what ended up happening was, you know, her dad comes home from prison. And because, you know, he had been away, he didn't feel like he could really kind of step in and, uh, you know, really kind of tell her what to do with her life, right? Let the mom kind of lead the way. And so I was listening to this. And I was thinking, I was like, damn, man, you know, even when we are around, sometimes black men are caring so much, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't like using the word like trauma, but like, you know, bringing all this, uh, how do you say, like dealing with their own issues right? That they might not necessarily be the best reflection or the best role model for their own kids. And so, you know, we're talking to this and I'm talking to some of the other kids and, uh, you know, there was three of, there was three of them. And one of our other kids was talking about how, yeah, you know, in her family and in her community, like a lot of the men are, you know, the street life, right? The goons. Um, and that's for a variety of different reasons. We can talk about, you know, mass incarceration, all this different stuff, but let's just say, and the group of kids I'm working with, right, there isn't the best, um, a lot of them don't have the best role models around. And so, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm talking about entrepreneurship. I'm talking about, about what's possible. I'm sitting here, you know, giving them feedback and talking about life. And I could just look in the eye, look in their eyes and realize how I was being perceived by them. And I realized that once again, I find myself carrying the black man's burden of that even though some kids may have father figures at home, right? They may not necessarily have a father figure that they can actually aspire to be like, which is unfortunate, right? Because we all are dealing with life, right? Some of us have had issues with the police or whatever. Um, some of us have just never really found our way, you know? Um, and so, you know, those of us who have, you know, been successful, if that's even a word, right? you know, depending on a child's upbringing, right? They might not have, you know, someone around that they can look at and say like, I, I want to be like that. And so, you know, when you're like a mentor or a coach or something, you step in and you fill that role for people. And I just, I'm very self-aware about it. You know, like when I'm working with kids, whether in my boxing gym or, um, you know, through the Thrive or just going out about and talking, et cetera, you know, I'm, I'm starting to become self-aware. Maybe I should always been self-aware that there are not a lot of people like me doing what I'm doing in this environment. So naturally kids are going to gravitate towards me and look at me as a role model. And my confession is that this makes me feel uncomfortable at times because when kids start looking at me at like a father figure, it makes me feel uncomfortable and it makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't have my own father. So part of me feels like not necessarily like any kind of imposter syndrome, 
but just this me still trying to make it up as I go, me still trying to find my own space in this world. Um, but I know that I have to kind of step into this role. And I've, you know, and it's very, it's very hard. Um, when I got out of the Marines, you know, I, I took a job working at St. Benedict's Prep, all boys school. It was all boys right in the heart of downtown Newark. And I ran the residence hall. So I lived in this giant house of 70 teenage boys for but three years. And literally in this house, what I did was I put them through study hall. I was responsible for discipline issues. I mean, I was a house parent and I was the house parent, right? They called me Mr. Stabman. My, my apartment was right on the top floor. And um, that was what I lived and breathed for three years, right? It wasn't really even a job. It was honestly more of a calling and I was always on. And during this time, I don't know how many kids that I worked with. I mean, I was there when, you know, I'll give you an example. I think there was like a flood in Mexico. One of my kids, um, his grandparents were in Mexico and they were killed by the flood. And one day I get a knock on my door and I open my door and there's this kid out there and he's bawling his eyes out and he tells me what happened. And, you know, anytime you're like a male figure in these environments, there's always this little kind of tension, right? Because I'm like the authority figure. And uh, I hug him and he squeezes me so hard and he just starts bawling in my arms, right? And I'm feeling this role. There's been other times where, um, you know, from everything from dealing with like death like that to just kind of having the heart to heart and not even just at St. Benedict's, right? We would have midshipmen come, you know, and help out at St. Benedict's. That's how I got introduced to Newark was because I was one of those midshipmen that did a summer internship at St. Benedict's fell in love with the school, fell in love with the city of Newark and decided to come back. And even in my interactions with some of the black midshipmen, they would send, right? I had a midshipman who was a boxer and he opened up to me and he was just like, Mike, you know, how do you deal with, you know, um, not having a father, you know, because he's like, I look up to you, man. You're like a father figure to me. You know, I didn't have a dad growing up and all this other stuff. And again, it's like that, damn, man, I keep stepping in this heat. You know, um, and I guarantee some of my mentees are listening to this podcast right now. Um, and I probably feel that role for a lot of them. Um, but it's just this sense of like, you know, here I am, you know, at the time, what was I like 28, 29 when I stepped into it. And when I left, I was what, 31. Um, but I've just kind of been in this just like father figure role. Right. I've had to lose. I've lost kids. Um, you know, there's a guy, a, a young man named Alpha T Huey, who unfortunately was killed in a car wreck and me and Alpha T kind of used to go at it in the house initially when I first got there. And I was like a gnat, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if it was the Marine in me, but I, I just would not give up on a kid. Um, and you know, I could, I could stand in the heat. I could take it. And a lot of times when you're, when you got to earn the res you got to earn the respects from a lot of these kids to even engage with you, right? Newark is a very challenging city, right? They've, a lot of these kids, I guess, have been uh, very, I don't want to say standoffish, but they don't just give up trust regularly, let alone to black men who have, for whatever reason, personify men in their lives who've abandoned them or who haven't done right by them. And that's not all of them, but I'm just saying, right, if you don't have a male figure around, right, then 
you know, when somebody steps in and all of a sudden tell you, tells you what to do, right? You're like, who are you? Right? You're not my fucking dad. You don't get to tell me what to do, et cetera. And I even feel that myself. So I know what they're, what they're talking about. But there's this kid, Alpha T, man. And uh, Alpha T had gone through it coming up, him and his brother. And he had a twin brother. And uh, Alpha T, man, should get into St. Benedict's. And uh, he, was a, he was a character, let's just say that. And I just remember so many times we would be at dinner table and I'm sitting at the table and I'm with all these young black men because St. Benedict's is uh, uh, it's a predominantly black and Latino, young men of color, primarily uh, black and Latino because it's just a reflection of the city of Newark. But obviously a lot of the young black men gravitated around the house. Now, not everybody in the house was African-American or uh, Haitian or whatever. I mean, it's a whole separate conversation. We got to get on about what it means to be black. But these are young black men sitting around the table and we did dinner every night. And Alpha T was always trying to start some shit. And he'd be like, Mr. Stedman, let's talk about fathers. I want to talk about fathers. And there was this kid next to me. Uh, his name was uh, Nikes, right? And then we had this other kid, Kukli. And again, kids, no fathers. We're just a bunch of table of fatherless black men. And Alpha T likes to start some shit. And he's like, I want to talk about fathers. And he's like, Nikis don't have a father. And I want to know how it makes him feel or something along those lines. And Nikis would just kind of put his head down because I think part of it is that like people do get embarrassed about the fact of like, you know, you feel uncomfortable when people start bringing up fathers, you don't have one. Um, and it's almost like, I don't necessarily know if it's a reflection of you or if you internalize it, like maybe there's something wrong with you, but it just makes you feel uncomfortable. And whenever we talk about fathers, Nikis will put his head down, right? And they would just, you know, we would just kind of chop it up about what it means to be a black man. And, you know, um, I could just tell that it bothered him. Maybe that's why Alpha T would always express himself. But man, I worked on Alpha T, right? We would, I would take him out to eat. Uh, me and him would go to the diner. Uh, we would share books, right? I listened to this artist called Zach Hemsey. Um, a lot of you all might know of him. Maybe you don't. But I will tell Alpha T, I found out about Zach Hemsey. And so it was little stuff like this that we would share music kind of um, back and forth, right? And then um, just little stuff, you know, just building rapport. And by the time, like when I first met Alpha T, Alpha T was in the headmaster's office because he got kicked out of school. And right when I got out of the Marines, you know, the sister headmaster or the headmaster at the time was like, Stedman, meet Alpha T. Alpha T was a knucklehead. And, you know, I got to know him, whatever. But over time, I built rapport with him. And uh, Alpha T ended up graduating St. Benedict's. And Alpha T ended up getting killed in a car wreck. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, uh, I, was, I just remember when I found that out. Um, and... You know, it's weird. It's like, because you live in a house, right? These aren't necessarily your children. But you feel this responsibility towards them, you know, anyway. And it's like, how do you equate these kind of experiences? And I'm sorry, I got emotional because I'm just I'm kind of processing it right now on the podcast. But, you know, I was a father figure for a lot of these kids. And I spent years in the house with a lot of these kids. And, uh, you know... Once they leave and they graduate, right, they're off in the world and you're, you know, you're, you're, you still had that experience, almost like being a platoon commander. Like, 
you know, you were part of this unit for this one period of time in history. Um, but I think being in the house, being a house parent is a little different because like you really did feel like you raised these kids and, you know, you, you, we, we start moving on with life. You kind of get out of touch with a lot of them, but occasionally like they pop back into your life, you know? And there was another young man that popped back in recently and I hadn't had a chance to talk to him in a long time. And a lot of these kids follow me on social media, um, which is one of the only reasons really I have an Instagram is because I know kids are watching and that's how they communicate. Um, and uh, I have a kid named Terrence and Terrence was another one. He was part of a program called Beat the Streets. Um, and he came out of New York City. Um, and, you know, he came to St. Benedict's on like a wrestling scholarship because that's what Beat the Streets does. They're really good with wrestling. And Terrence had gone through the ringer too. You know, I mean, everybody's got, I don't care if you're black, white, whatever. Everybody's, you know, life is hard for a lot of people. But for a lot of black men, young black men, it seems unfairly hard for a lot of them. And, you know, I got to know Terrence, right? And I'm talking about those long powwows, like late at night, Mr. Stedman, can I talk to you? And then you go and you sit and chop it up and you're talking for three hours about life just through the middle of the night, you know? Um, and he's telling you, you know, Terrence had a lot of issues with some mental health, you know, he had tried to kill himself and all this other stuff. And he's opening up to you about it. And, uh, you know, how we end up having to go to like a, a, a medical facility and saw this other stuff, right? But really, really impressive young man. And I really, I, I really had a, a soft spot in my heart for him. And the other thing is, Terrence is like a, a, a beast, right? You know how like you see like a professional athlete, Division One athletes, right? Like that build. Well, that's kind of like, that's his build as a wrestler. And so anyways, right? I see Terrence at a boxing match um, a few weeks ago because one of my mentees who's at the Naval Academy, he was competing. And uh, he spent, he actually went to the Naval Academy with us. And uh, Terrence comes, and this is my first time seeing Terrence in like three years, you know, because once I left St. Benedict's, I got in the, the hustle of, you know, trying to do the for-profit arm of Ironbound Boxing and running nonprofit and everything. So we just kind of disconnected, but I haven't seen him on social media. We haven't talked. And I see Terrence and man, he just gives me a hug and we're so happy to see each other. And then we start talking and then Terrence once again opens up about how I was like a father figure to him. Um, and, you know, I'm just like, damn, here we go again. And I could just tell the entire night, just kind of like interacting with him, how he was watching me, you know, watching my moves and everything and just how much he enjoyed being around. And then afterwards, you know, um, after the boxing show, we all went out to eat and grab some food. I had my girlfriend with me and some other uh, Naval Academy alums and we're all hanging out. And Terrence is there with us, um, as well as one of the other mentee. And I just was like, damn, man, like, here we go again, right? Like, and so really the reality of it is, is that like, I probably have, I have, God knows, I have no idea how many mentees I have out there. And I have no idea how many mentees I have now, given Ironbound Boxing and me just being in the gym coaching. Um, and it makes me wonder, right? Like, I was talking to my, one of my board members about this of, you know, and obviously if you're a successful black man, white America, black America expects you to be that role model to whom much is given, much is expected. But sometimes I wonder, right, for white people, do you carry the same obligation that many of us feel as black men to our people, right? Like, 
if you see, if you're a white person and you see a poor white kid, does it hit you in the soul? Does it hit you in the spirit? You know, when you walk through a neighborhood where uh, a bunch of people are living through, living in abject poverty, right? Do you feel this innate responsibility to do something about it in your business, in your life, right? Do you go out of your way to mentor these young kids to show them what's possible and to improve their economic and social outcomes? And you don't have to necessarily answer the question. I'm just thinking out loud about this. Like, do you, do you all feel this? And I made this comment. I asked someone close to me whether they felt like this white man's burden. He's like, no, <laughs> you know? But for us as black men, right? Like, I don't know, and I've said this before, like you are a special type of black person in my mind if you can uh, be okay with the majority of our people, young men and women living in abject poverty, being stuck in a cycle of mass incarceration, right? Um, and not having the same economic opportunities that many Americans have for whatever reason. And this is where I feel this responsibility for me and the work I do at Ironbound Boxing and even Ironbound Media, because I create so much educational content to lift as I climb. And I try to do it in the best way I can in a very authentic way. But it is a challenge because the eyes, right? Just as there is a white gaze, there is a black gaze. And when you're living up to the expectations of others have of you, you are even more worried to fail in front of them because you know the standard that they have that you hold in their eyes and the obligation um, you have to fulfill it. And it's challenging and it makes me feel uncomfortable. And to be honest, I can't tell you whether I'm more uncomfortable in the white gaze or the black gaze, or does it even matter? To be honest, because at the end of the day, this is all just kind of made up, right? It's all make-believe. Are these things really real? You know, race and color and all this other stuff. But I, I speak from the perspective of a black man because a lot of times I just feel like in the media we have today, right? It's very surface level, right? It's not deep, right? And I want to go deep and, you know, I want to um, speak about what I am experiencing and think through, um, think through some of this stuff, you know, and even be that even being an entrepreneur, right? Like, you know, other black entrepreneurs look up to you, you know, like they're, they're looking up to you. They're reaching out to you. Every time you step on stage, you know, when I won that $25,000 check from the street shares foundation in 2019, Mike Lloyd called me from dope coffee and said, Mike, you have no idea how good it felt to see you standing up on stage with that check. And it's just like, I guess a lot of times people just don't see black entrepreneurs winning um, per se, or at least the ones in their own immediate circles. And so when one of us wins, all of us wins. Um, and he, so many other people said, you know, it's like, that's that, that's a Roger Bannister moment, moment. It, there's a Roger Bannister moment for a lot of people in my network. It's a, it's a Roger Bannister moment for a lot of black veterans because they're like, oh, I see Mike Stedman doing it. That means I can probably do it too, right? I just show people what is possible. And so 
now even for adults, you're carrying that, right? And so for kids, for adults, man, you're just carrying this fucking pressure. And now, though, whether than like cower from it, I'm leaning into it. Now, the kids make me feel uncomfortable, right? But I still show up to the gym every day. I show up to that heat every day. I show up to thrive, you know, every day. And I give my authentic self. And I give my heart and soul. But again, the self-awareness is like, oh, my God, these kids are looking at me as this role model. I'm still figuring it out. I'm still making the sausage. You know, my life at times is like the Wizard of Oz. I'm just pulling a bunch of strings. But I got to I got to keep I got to keep showing up, man. I got to keep um, doing the best I can with what I have. And those are just some of the thoughts that are on my mind. So I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you guys think about the black man's burden? Do you feel it? If you're not black, do you feel it for your people? Black, I mean, white, Latino, um, Jewish, whatever, your community, whatever group you identify with. You know, do you feel this, this responsibility to lift as you climb? Do you feel this responsibility to be a role model for those within your community that are not as fortunate as you are? You know, I'm curious to, to know. Um, and this is something that I'm actually going to be writing about. I was actually writing about it the other day. So maybe that's why I felt comfortable enough to come on the podcast and, and talk to you about it. But that's what's on my heart and what's on my mind. And I thank you for listening. And uh, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are. Before I let you go, because this is a shorter episode today, I want to give you a couple updates of things that are going on in my personal life. One, um, I've talked before about writing this book, Confessions of a Native Son. Um, and I'm going through this, this course called the Creators Institute. And I have decided to not write the book Confessions of a Native Son and instead write the book Black Veteran Entrepreneur. And one of the reasons I've chosen to do that is this is my first book. Uh, entrepreneurship is very fresh on my mind. I read a lot of stuff. And I've actually stopped reading entrepreneur books and just started writing everything I know and getting it down on paper. And I'm going to create a, a, a book for Black veteran entrepreneurs, because I believe that Black veteran entrepreneurs represent an untapped resource for improving the economic and social outcomes of the Black community in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the low numbers of uh, entrepreneurs we have within the Black community. So I want to empower the veteran community, which is a community that I'm a part of, that I can reach out and touch and empower the Black veterans to launch, grow and scale profitable ventures for themselves and their community. So I'm writing the book, Black Veteran um, Entrepreneur. And, um, you know, for your first book, right, everybody tries to put all this pressure on it, you know, but at the end of the day, right, you just need to get some, I won't say you need to get some out, but, you know, I plan on writing multiple books and I need to make this first one as easy as possible for me. And writing Black Veteran Entrepreneur is a lot easier than writing Confessions of a Native Son, which is essentially like the souls of Black folks 2.0. So I uh, appreciate y'all being part of that journey with me. And for my next episode, I'll probably talk about uh, Black Veteran Entrepreneur and some of the stuff I'm thinking about um, for that. In addition, I am writing every day. I'm writing, uh, I'm writing for the book. And then I'm also writing for Hoover Institute. And I've been running my podcast and sharing my podcast with the Hoover Institute uh, for a distribution channel to get some of my thought leadership out. And one of the things that I'm giving myself permission to do is that while I understand audio, I mean, writing is a great medium 
and I'm pushing myself to be a better writer. I also have very prolific content, I believe, through audio. Um, I produced an entire series called Black Entrepreneurs Survive and Thrive, where I talk about the resilience, grit, and determination of uh, Black entrepreneurs and the role patient capital plays. And so I decided to go ahead and share that with the Hoover Institute. And, uh, you know, sometimes, right, like even for me, self-awareness, uh, I don't want to pigeonhole, I don't want to say I pigeonhole myself, but sometimes I think for us as Black people, it's like, why are you always talking about race? You know, uh, black this, black that, whatever. But part of it is also this kind of dog whistle branding that I talk about in my business of I'm going after certain people's attention. And if I don't put it on front and center, I may or may not get their attention. Right. When I told someone I was writing a book, Black Veteran Entrepreneur, their immediate response, oh, that's a terrible title. Nobody's going to read that book. And I was like, it's not for you. See, that's what a lot of people fail to realize. Right. You're you're a, you're it's not reading for you. I don't care if 10 black veteran entrepreneurs read the book and launch a venture, right? I am doing what I set out to do, which is to impact, positively impact my community. And now every time a black veteran entrepreneur reaches out to me for help and guidance, I'm able to hand them this asset and say, read this. This is made for you, for us, by us, and it's going to have agency in it. Um, one of the things that even led me to podcasting in the first place was because when I launched my ventures, I was reading all these business books, marketing, branding, category design, et cetera, et cetera. And I very, I never saw a black author. All the books I saw were of the come up, you know, the ragged riches story, like a 50 cent book or whatever. But like, if I grabbed a book on, you know, how to execute a go to market strategy or something, right. It's very rarely by a black author, if any black author, if any. And I started to explore this idea, well, maybe um, I can channel through the noise by creating podcasts and treating podcasts like books and be the Peter Drucker of podcasts and create educational content that I can send to my community because there's a whole variety of reasons why Black people represent less than 4% of the publishing industry. And God knows how many of those fall under the, um, you know, the business literature category. So there's all this stuff. So again, if I don't put black front and center on a lot of these things that I'm talking about, it might get lost in the noise. And I, again, I am being very open and honest about my goal in life, which is, again, you've heard me say it multiple times on this podcast, the lift as I climb and the community I'm focused on primarily is the black community and improving the economic and social outcomes of the black community. And I'm also focus on improving the economic and social outcomes of the veteran community. But I live in Newark, New Jersey. I live in Chocolate City. I see black kids on the corner all day, every day. I see the poverty that my people live in, in Newark, as well across the country. Insert Detroit, insert Cleveland, insert all these places. And if not me, then who? And so I appreciate you all for tuning in. I appreciate y'all for supporting the cause. And I would love to hear your feedback on today's episode. I would love to hear from you all if you feel like you're carrying the black man's burden or if you're carrying the white man's burden or whatever burden that you feel like you're carrying, I want to learn about it. Thank you for listening. And do me a favor. Um, make sure you subscribe to the newsletter for Confessions of a Native Son at the link in the show notes. And feel free to share this podcast with others in your network 
you think and benefit from uh, hearing uh, this subject matter. You know, this is sensitive stuff, right? Like, and again, I'm trying to do more monologues. I'm not trying, I'm doing more monologues. Um, and I'm talking about some deep stuff. And I also want to hear what topics you would like me to address on the podcast as well. I really appreciate it when y'all listen and y'all text me or y'all shoot me an email, you know, it lets me know um, who's out there and how you're perceiving the content. But I would love to hear from you. So shoot me a text at 832-284-1045. I'd also like to acknowledge our sponsors for today's show. First, I'd like to announce, uh, I will first, excuse me, First, I would like to acknowledge my organization, Ironbound Boxing, a nonprofit based in Newark, New Jersey, that provides free amateur boxing training, entrepreneur education, and employment opportunities to Newark youth and young adults. To support the cause, you can visit our website, ironboundboxing.org, and make a donation today. And I am working on this Courage Academy, the Ironbound Courage Academy, to bring innovation and entrepreneurship um, and a sense of agency right in the heart of downtown Newark. So expect more information to come out on that soon. But in the meantime, go to our website and uh, click the tab at the top to learn more about the Ironbound Courage Academy. I'd also like to acknowledge Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban Black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for Black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate Black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. As an investor and advisor, I couldn't be more proud of Mike and Michelle and Stace, as well as the rest of the members of the Dope Coffee team. So please head over to realdope.coffee, place an order today, and show them some love. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your life. Black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our trees, black man. 